All right, welcome everybody. Glad you guys are here today. My name's Jeff Baker. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm glad that you could show up to, uh, to New Life today. We want to welcome all of you that are guests with us. I have to take a quick moment and say hello to all of those that are worshiping with us in the venue, um, as well as those that are worshiping with us right now in North Platte. It's an exciting day around, uh, around New Life right now with uh, three venues and just seeing God do some uh, really amazing things um, in our lives. And uh, we're just all synced up right now live, and that's just a lot of fun. It's great to be a part of a church that's growing and that God's doing incredible things in the lives of people. So we're in our current teaching series, I Am Second, and that's where we're going to continue to journey today. We're going to tackle two things, though, that are highly devastating to the classic, um, the classic Christian uh, highly devastating in our walks. It happens early in our walk. It happens late in our walk. So it's not really about how long you follow Jesus today. It's just a matter of time, whether you have tackled one of these issues or it's getting ready to tackle you. Um, that's where we're at. This I Am Second series, though, if this is your first week with us, um, one of the things you need to know is that we're striving to live our lives second only to one person, and that is, that is Jesus Christ. We want to live our lives fully, completely surrendered so that Jesus can rule and reign in our hearts, our minds, our actions, and our behavior. And so today we're just continuing that journey. In fact, you just need to know that the journey of a Christian is to become more Christ-like. To become more Christ-like means that the human side of us has to die and Christ has to come alive. That's why we're living as second here. So uh, let's just uh, let's dive in. Talk about uh, a couple of things here today. Have you ever have you ever uh, met a person who seems to be offended by everything? This would be a good moment not to nudge the person next to you. I know I get myself in trouble all the time because I make statements like that, and then I watch husbands make this the foolish moves, right? And I'm like, guys, guys, no, that wasn't. That's not. No, don't link up with me on that one. You're gonna go down, right? You're. You're going to sink like a boat that just got hit by a big cannon. So have you ever, you have met people that are offended by virtually everything, right? I mean, people that are offended when you don't talk to them, right? But they're also offended when you do talk to them. And you're like, how do I win? I don't even know how to win on this one. Or they're offended when you change things, right? And they might be offended when you don't change th- certain things, like a neighbor who wishes that you would change something, but you just aren't doing it. Or they get offended by who your friends are. And they also get offended by who isn't your friend. I can't believe that. I can't believe that that person's not part of your friends. Or they get offended by something that you did five years ago, and they're still hanging on to it, right? But now they just got offended yesterday by something you didn't do. And so it's like there's certain people on this planet that it's virtually impossible to try to please them. In fact, if they aren't being offended... And they don't have some kind of offense to tell you about. To them, it's as if they're not living. Now, that's no fun to be around someone like that. Right? And you're obviously sitting here right now going, well, it's not me. So, Pastor, you can just flip the page and go to the next sermon. (laughs) Because I'm offended by the fact that you're talking about being offended. (laughs) So... See, on a serious note, what we need to know about offenses is when we harbor an offense inside of our hearts, it's something that will be passed on. That's, that's the danger of an offense. The danger of holding something over another person's head so that you can be in charge of them, really, is what, it, what you're doing. Or so that, you know, you can, you can try to maybe protect yourself from something in the future 
it's, it's now living in you. It's like a living organism that is going to come out of you and it's going to impact the people that are around you. An offense is never going to lay dormant in your life. It will always want to come out. That's the danger. That's one of the reasons why we're talking about it today. And many of us, if not all of us, have been offended at one point or another. And I would venture to say, if I could do a silent poll, there's many of you that are sitting here today offended by something or someone, and you're hanging on to that right now. The other, the other thing we're going to tackle is, have you ever met a person who wants everybody in the world to know just how busy they really are? You ever met one of those folks? And they come around, they tell you, man, I just, I don't have any time for anything. I'm so busy. I'm working 120 hours a week in my job. Like every week, every week, every week. And if they, if they, if I could give them more, I'd give them more. You know, or I'm so busy. I, I, I don't even, I don't even know where my home is at right now. I'm that busy. I mean, I just don't even know what reality is. I'm so busy. I don't even know what day it is. You ever ran across people that they just want you to know there's this like, there's this innate desire inside of them for you to know just how busy they really are? You ran across people like that? I'm so busy. I don't even have time for family and friends. Are you serious to go play? No way, Jose. I've got a lot to get done. Now, I know we can all be busy at times. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, there's weeks of my life that go by. There's, I said to someone the other day, where did October go? Right? And they said, where did the summer go? And I went, yeah, where did the year go? And before you know, we're back to like, yeah, where did creation go? I mean, we're... And it happens like that. It's like, wow, man, just the other day I was reading Genesis, and now look at me. So it's not that we aren't going to have busy lives, but when you get more focused on doing, when you get more focused on being busy, then you're more likely to miss the best in life. The things that God's trying to show you, those roses in the midst of the journey. You're way more likely to hurt people that you love when you're just a doer and you're, you're overly busy and you're most likely to waste time that, listen, you're never going to get it back. You're going to live life with regrets. And those regrets turn into offenses and it just keeps snowballing. Well, in Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at this situation that happens where Jesus shows up in this town and Mary and Martha, these two sisters, invite Jesus and his disciples into their house. Martha really truly understands busyness and doing. That's her life right now. And she also knows what it means to grab a hold of an offense and really allow it to control her. So if you would allow us, we want to paraphrase the Luke chapter 10 passage where Mary and Martha meet Jesus. And I want you to hear it from Martha's perspective. Take a listen from one of our drama members. Jesus was coming to our town. Many people had dropped everything to follow him, and many had heard his stories. He didn't speak like our other religious leaders. I knew him personally, though. He was my friend. My sister Mary and I had grown to know and love Jesus, so it was only natural that we would host him when he came to our town. Jesus and his disciples would stay at our home. There were many plans that had to be made before they arrived. My sister and I would present a clean house and feed them a wonderful meal. The house had to be clean spotless. His presence deserved nothing less in my mind. I swept and scrubbed the floor. I dusted furniture. 
until the house not only appeared clean, but it was immaculate for his arrival. I started planning our meal. What would we have? Lamb, bread, of course, some sort of vegetable. I began the preparations. I lit the fire. I made the bread dough, kneading it as quickly as I could. I knew time was short. I just wasn't sure how we would get it all done. And then just like that, Jesus was there. He and his disciples had arrived, and I hadn't even finished my preparations. So I told Mary to go out and welcome them, make them feel comfortable. I set the table. I just, the meal still had to cook. I didn't know how we were going to get it all done. I didn't know what the others would say about my hosting. I just didn't want to let Jesus down. So I frantically began working in the kitchen, trying to finish the meal, letting it cook. And where was Mary? I told her to go and make them comfortable, but I expected her to return as soon as that task was complete. She was nowhere to be found. I needed her in the kitchen. I checked on the meal again. I was so worried it was going to burn. I can't feed Jesus a burnt meal. And what was it his disciples tell others about my cooking? That's when I stepped out of the kitchen, and there was Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his stories. (laughs) We had so much work to do, and she's just sitting there. We didn't have time for stories. So I said to him, Jesus, there is still a lot of work to be done. Tell Mary to get up and help me. I'm the only one working here. And do you know what he said to me? He said that I was worried about things that didn't matter. The cooking, the cleaning, those didn't matter. They had to be done. He said that Mary had made the right choice and that he would not tell her to get up and help me. I had worked so hard cleaning my home, preparing that meal for their arrival. Mary hadn't done anything. I thought that my preparations would have been worthy of something. I thought that all my hard work would please Jesus. I am Martha, and I am first. All right, so that's the passage. We're going to dig into it in just a minute. If you were here last week with the 982 other people that were worshiping with us in one of our venues, which is an exciting day, and so many people last week gave their lives to Christ, it was Really, it was really a phenomenal moment of a miraculous move of God, uh, just really exciting around here. You would have heard a sermon that dealt with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And that was the moment where Lazarus dies and then Jesus comes along and raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, why am I bringing that up? And by the way, if you didn't see it, go to mynewlifechurch.com and watch it. So as you can get a full context of what I'm talking about here at this moment. It's important for you to know something right now, that the biblical moment that we're talking about here in Luke chapter 10, it happens before the Mary, Martha, Lazarus one that we preached last week. So you might ask yourself, well, why is that so important? Well, last week, Martha, although her brother dies, she still lives as second. Yeah, she's confused. Yeah, she's distraught. 
Yeah, she wishes Jesus would have shown up earlier, but she still says to Jesus, even though you didn't get here in time to heal my brother, I still believe you are the Son of God, and I'm still going to give you all my worship, and I'm still going to give you the best that I have. But this week, this moment that happens before that, here's Martha, distracted, upset about all the details that need to be done. She even goes to Jesus and complains. She's clearly living as first. It's about me. It's about my needs. It's not about you, Jesus, and your needs. Why is that so significant? It's significant for you because what you need to know is that just like Martha changed from this week to last week, she went from I'm living first to I'm content living second. So can you go from living first to living second. It's possible. You might think right now, well, man, that just goes against the total grain of an American. I got it. I understand that. It goes against our culture. Live as second? It's about what I fight for, what I get my hands on, what I can accomplish, what I can get done. Isn't it, Jeff? Well, if you want to live by man's rules, yes. But if you want to live by God's rules, God's the one who comes along and he says, you're going to have to move just like Martha is going to move from living first to letting me truly rule and reign your heart. There's hope today. Hope for you that God can do a radical transformation in your heart. But we first have to get past this in a boxing terminology, this one-two punch. These two things, this offense and this busyness or this doer mentality, we're going to have to get beyond those two things because those things are knocking Christians out of the game left and right. One, two, boom, boom. And they take an offense and it just takes, it takes, them, uh, takes them down for the count. And then they're out of the game for a while until they get their life put back together. So let's tackle these things. If you, wanna, if you want Jesus to be first and you want to live contently and securely at second, then you've got to realize that busyness does not equal godliness. If we can go back to the passage really quick. It says this in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. Important to know that. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted, important, is distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. Busyness doesn't equate godliness. Martha, one of the things you need to really recognize about her life is that look who invites Jesus and the disciples over. Which of the two sisters? Martha does. So first off, right off the bat, here's Martha with a desire to worship, with a desire to know Jesus, just like you. You're here today. You made a conscious effort to be here. The snow, it blew the other day. It's cold. The Huskers, they lost, but yet you're still here. Yes, your spirit needs to be transformed. Yes, you got to let your heart get warm again towards God because everything about you is frigid and cold right now. I got it. But you're here and you're wanting to know God. Martha wanted Jesus to be in the house, but notice how quickly she got distracted by the remedial tasks. How quickly do we at times get distracted by the remedial tasks that look good, that sound right, but our attention gets more on those. And look how quick Martha gets her attention off of Jesus and onto the remedial task of the meal. The intent of her heart, it just switches. It does a flip-flop. It goes upside down on her. Her compass gets flipped around and she loses perspective on what was really important to live for. And guys, I'm telling you today, wake up. Because it's so easy for us to lose that perspective. So easy for us to miss the moment. 
It's so easy for us, for our attention to be on Jesus, wanting to know him, wanting to grow with him, and then instantly we're all of a sudden consumed with, well, i got to get to church because I have to. i got to read my Bible because I need to. i got to get off to this Bible study because it's the right thing to do. And we get ourselves into this groove of doing and being busy, and we miss the most. Busyness, this doer mentality, although it's spelled out in a physical manner, it really is an issue of our hearts. Because we have to realize today that God's not coming to you today going, oh, by the way, stop doing things for me. That's not what he was saying to Martha. God's not coming to you going, hey, no, the church doesn't need any more volunteers. Just you come and you sit. You be more like Mary. Just sit there and gaze into my eyes. In fact, every day, don't go to work. Don't go to work. Just get a picture, picture of me and just sit there in front of it all day long and just gaze into my eyes. That's not what Jesus is saying. There's still work that has to be done. The problem arises when we get more focused on the work, the doing, the busyness of it, than the one that we're doing it for. And if you've been in this Christian journey any length of time, you can attest to the fact of how quickly you can get to that place. Why? There's a lot of different reasons. Let me highlight a couple of them. One, there's a fear inside of us. A fear of being transparent there's a fear of being real. There's a fear of getting really close to people because then people are really going to know us. And so we get busy doing things. We get our hands in stuff. We get our hands in life. And we just race after it with a tenacity. Why? Because it makes it a lot easier to keep relationships shallow. And when relationships stay shallow, even with God, then we don't have to be real and transparent. And it's partly a fear that drives us to that. There's another side, though. That's like me. Some of us, you have this driven personality, right? You have this driven desire inside of you to accomplish something and to conquer it. And, man, the more that you're driving to accomplish, the more that you've got your hands on that you're scraping to fulfill, man, the more fulfilled you are. You know what? God puts some of that inside of us. That driven mentality, the focus, that laser focus that allows you to see the objective and then to do everything that's required to achieve it. The problem is when we become a slave to our driven personality. That's not what God intended. God doesn't intend for your soul to drive you, because that's where that driven personality is at, by the way. It's resting completely in the soul. He desires for us to live by the Spirit. And when we do that, then he activates that driven peace inside of us for good. He, dry, he, he activates it for his kingdom. He activates it, he act, activate it to, to accomplish what he wants to do. That's what God does. But when we drive by it, we become a slave to it. And here's the other thing. The other thing about this busyness or this doer mentality is that it's very elusive. You don't know when you're living in it at times until it's too late. Until the wheels fall off your life, until you run into all the obstacles, until you, you slam into the dead end sign at the end of the road, right before the cliff. It's elusive. You don't realize it because it sounds so good at times. Like, you know what I did, Jeff, before I came to church today? Man, I, I went online and watched another preacher. This is my second church to go to today. And you know what I'm going to do when I get home? I'm not watching football. I'm going to be watching another preacher. I'm going to go to church three times a day. And then I'm meeting with two other people for a Bible study. By the end of the day, you know how much time invested into God's word I'm going to have? It's going to be amazing. In fact, basically what you're saying is that everyone should be like you. 
It's that doer. It's that, you know what I do, Jeff, throughout the week? I go to four different Bible studies. Well, that's, there's good. I mean, that's fine. I mean, you can go to church 12 times on a Sunday. That's fine. You can go to, you can go to six different Bible studies throughout the week if you really choose to. But it comes down to the issue of the heart. Why are you? What's driving you to do that? Many times you think, man, I am I'm on a course just accomplishing everything God wants me to do. Look at how, you know, it's just how God and God's word and all these Bible studies and all these worship services are consuming my life. I must be on the right course, right, Jeff? And many times you're just on a, a spiritual race. You're not on a spiritual journey. The big difference between a spiritual race than a spiritual journey. Let me tell you the difference. A journey is designed to take you to a specific place. This place where the guide, being the Holy Spirit, is wanting to lead you. While a race is meant just to show off and to go in circles. You ever been to a, you ever been to a race? I was just talking with a, an old friend of mine before this service started about a race. And how you go in circles around a race. And how the cars are brought out there to really look good. And, and many times in our Christianity, that's how we see ourselves. How good can I look? And I'm out there just to go in circles. <laughs> you think you're going someplace, but you're really caught on a track going in circles. Uh, th- let me tell you some more difference. A journey, a spiritual journey, will have unique challenges that stretch you to grow. Sometimes you're climbing a mountain spiritually. Other times you're down in a valley and having to trust God in a fresh new way. Sometimes, man, you're out in the desert place where it just seems like, God, where did you go? But you're on the journey. And other times you're in some kind of adventurous moment where it just, it just thrills your socks off. I mean, you're just like, I, I love this. This is amazing. Whereas a race, the spiritual race, the trap of it is that it can, it's a controlled environment with very predictable challenges. And over time, you learn the challenges. And you get comfortable with the challenges. And you like those challenges because you've learned them and you can conquer them now. And it makes you feel like you're going someplace when really all you're doing is a spiritual race. Feels like you're getting somewhere, but you're really just going in circles. God hasn't called us to be in a spiritual race. He's called us to go on a spiritual journey. He hasn't called you just to get on a track of your spiritual life and just keep going in little circles, but yet going nowhere. He's asked you to get on the track of life and go someplace. It's going to require challenges. It's going, to re, it's going to stretch you. It's going to pull you in all different kinds of directions. But doers and spiritual busy people just end up on a racetrack going around in circles. And eventually, guess what happens when you try to maintain that? You run out of gas. You get burnt out. And then what do you do? What's your first response then? God, what in the world? Look at all the things I was doing for you. Look at where we were going together. Look at, look at all the time that I was spending in your word. Look at all the time I was spending in worship. God, look at all the time that I was doing this and doing that. And, but I ran out of gas. What in the world? See, when you try to maintain the spiritual race versus surrendering to the spiritual journey, it requires you to be first. It takes every effort inside of you to promote yourself And to look at God and go, God, you must be happy. And to every day tell him about all the things you're doing for him. As if he needs us to do things for him. No, God wants us to lay down our doer mentality. He wants us to lay down our busyness and live a second. You want to live as second, you want to lay that down, then 
you, you must never put more value on what you're doing than who you're doing it for. It's always about Him. It has little to do with the details of what you're doing. It's more about the heart. That's where Martha lost it. She lost it because she so quickly moved from Jesus to the remedial task. If you want to live a second, then you must never equate that the, the amount of work that you can do for God as if it's spiritual maturity. It's not about the amount of work that you can do for God that equates to your spiritual maturity. It's not about how many Bible classes that you went to. It's not about all your accolades that somehow hang on the wall of your spiritual you know, uh, hall that you can promote to everyone about what you've done and where you've been and who you did it with and you know, all these things. It's not about that stuff. That stuff, that stuff is great. That's a part of the journey of what God's done, but it's not for us to proclaim. It, it really, it's for us to lay down because spiritual maturity comes from surrendering our hearts to God. And that's not just once, that's daily. And it's not just daily, but it's, it's by the moments. There's moments in all of our lives where we have to come to God and say, God, I'm getting ready to go into this meeting. I need to surrender myself to you. I need to hear your heart. I need to know what you're doing. It's not just in the morning. It's not just when we're going to bed. It's constantly throughout the day. God, I don't want to become the doer because look how fast it can switch. I don't want to become the busy man for you. I want to become the man who seeks you and knows you. I want to be the person that's hungry to sit before you like Mary and really know you and then get up from there and go on the journey where you want me to go and meet you at that destination and get the marching orders from the king again and to get back out there and march again. Spiritual maturity comes from knowing God, not just doing things for God. I think one of the important things that we've got to, we've got to remember that fuels this busyness and fuels this doer mentality in us is this. There's nothing that you can do that's going to make God love you more. The faster you let that soak into your heart and get into your head, the more content you're going to be. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. Oh, and by the way, there's nothing that you have done that would ever make God love you less. What does that tell you about the character and the nature of God? God's consistent. He's constant. He says, I've already made a way for relationship with you through my son Jesus Christ. I sent him to the cross. He died, but yet he rose again. There's nothing else I can do for you that's greater than that. And there's nothing that you can do that will make me love you less. See, the faster we let those principles sink into our hearts, the quicker we eradicate that doer and that busy mentality out of our lives. And the faster we grow content going, I'm second. (laughs) You're first. It's not about the accolades. It's about you being first. That's the first thing that we gain out of this passage with Martha. But the second thing, if you want to put Jesus first and live a second, is we have to let go of your offense. Take a look at this passage. Starting in verse 40, Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. So she came to Jesus and she said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her, to, tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you're worried and you're upset over all these details. Isn't that just like humanity? We're a, we're a pretty fickle group of people. We get offended pretty easy, right? I mean, we get offended at all kinds of things. 
We get offended by miscommunication. Well, you said this. I, you, I know you said that. No, I didn't. I didn't say that at all. Yes, you did. I can remember it. I know exactly where we were at. Five years ago, you said that. Right? And we're still offended now. Or we get offended by unmet expectations. When something is supposed to work, when you're supposed to, you know, you're, you're supposed to be there at a certain time to accomplish a certain task, or you were supposed to build a certain thing and it never got done. Or we can be offended even by certain things, like my Keurig coffee machine yesterday completely offended me. I got up in the morning, I went to that thing, I put my wife's coffee cup underneath it, I made her cup first, right? Out comes a hot, bubbling brew of goodness. I hand it to her, I put my cup underneath there, I put my Starbucks K-cup in there, hit the button, nothing. Like it just worked. What is the problem? I hit the buttons again. Dribble, dribble. Dribble, dribble. Come on, I want this thing full. Let's go. I don't have all day here, right? Time's ticking. And so I, you know, I say some things to it that I probably shouldn't have said. Probably offended the Keurig machine. And I did some things to it I probably shouldn't have done. I unplugged it multiple times. Like, I'll teach you a lesson, you know? I rule you. You don't rule me. It ended up ruling me. (laughs) It, It dominated me, man. I am so embarrassed by the things I said and did to that Keurig machine, I probably should go home and repent to it. <laughs> Finally got it fixed. Somewhere around 11 o'clock, I got my cup of coffee. That's the true story. We can get offended by the silliest things, and we can hold those offenses. You can get offended by broken promises. You can get offended by change. When we take an offense, we harbor it inside of our hearts. You do realize, right, that that offense, it starts altering like it did for me yesterday, as silly as it sounds. It starts altering my behavior. It will start altering your thoughts. It will start altering um, the way that you, you project yourself. It will start altering all kinds of areas of your life. Why? Because when offense gets in, it slowly creeps in and starts taking control of every area of your life. If you don't, let it go. If you don't, just give it up. If you don't, walk away from it. Pull it out of your heart and go, God, I'm laying this thing down. It's yours. It will eat you alive. Let me give you a couple examples. Take the person's prescription glasses next to you, stick them on your eyes, and see. Does it alter the way you see the world? You may not even recognize the person you're sitting next to anymore. That might not be bad. But when you put put those glasses on, It's going to alter the way you see everything, the way you see your computer, the way you drive, the way you see people. That's what an offense does. It gets inside of you and it starts altering the way you see the world, the way you see people, the way you see love, the way you see all kinds of things. And it starts changing the way that you respond. Let me give you another example. An offense is like a virus in your computer. Now, if you've gotten one, I apologize. All right? That's why I have a Mac. Now... Ouch. All right, so here's the deal. This is a fact. I'm just stating facts. All right, so here's the deal. So the virus gets in there, right, and it starts manipulating your email, and then it goes over and it starts manipulating your browser, and then it starts going over and manipulating everything until what happens? Until the virus starts taking over the entire computer. That's what an offense will do. An offense wants to take over and dominate your life. 
And it will do it wherever it can get in, and it will start dominating and controlling. I mean, look at Martha. Martha's offense causes her to complain to Jesus instead of talking privately with her own sister. She goes to Jesus and says words like, don't you care? Doesn't this seem unfair? Right? And guess here's the deal. If Martha would have kept her focus, if she would have kept her focus from the beginning on Jesus and less on all the details, there would have been no offense to mess with. But Martha's offense, as it gets inside of her, it even changes her ability to rationalize in a normal fashion. And that's why Jesus eventually has to say to her, you're worried and you're upset. Why? Because you know what was going on. Let's play it out. She goes into the kitchen. She gets the knife. She's looking at this piece of meat or this vegetable, and she's like, chop, chop, chop. Where's that sister of mine? Chop, chop. Where is she? Chop, 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 chop. Then she goes over and she looks into the living room and like, is she still there? I can't believe it. Go back over to the kitchen or bake some pans and throw some stuff around and go, oh, you know, make some noise and then go back and see if that got her attention. It didn't get her attention. So guess what she does? She just walks right up to Jesus. She gets between Jesus and Mary. Mary's now looking at the backside of Martha, most likely. She's like, I'll teach you a lesson. And says, don't you care, Jesus? Isn't what I'm doing more important to you anyways? Don't you really want to tell Mary, shouldn't you be doing something else, Mary, than just wasting your time right here at my feet? So irrational. That's what happens when an offense gets inside of you. It makes you so irrational, you can't even see truth for what it needs to be. That's why Jesus says to Martha those words. You're worried and you're upset. Jesus is trying to help Martha understand very clearly, Martha, you're getting your self-worth and your identity from a meal versus me. That's that's where you open the door up for offense. When you're getting your self-worth, you're getting your self-identity, you're trying to discover yourself through other people's opinions unmet expectations, miscommunications, or whatever it is, when your identity gets wrapped up in something other than Christ, you just kicked open the door and you said, basically, offend me because I'm like, I'm a sticky, you know, goo right now. Just offend me, it's going to stick into my heart and it's going to control me. That's what was happening with Martha. And Jesus was going, Martha, come back. Yeah, somebody had to prepare the meal, Martha. Thank you for doing that. I'm not scolding you for that. Somebody had to do those things. But the the thing that happened was you got more intent on the doing of the meal than the worshiping of me through the meal. Don't get wrapped up in the doing of things for God. Get more wrapped up in the worshiping of him through it. So what if you got an offense? What are some ways to maybe deal with that? Well, a couple quick things. Sometimes you just got to let it go and you got to walk away. Like in this situation, Martha just needs to wise up, become an adult, and realize Mary's not doing something intentionally to offend her. I just need to let that one go. And if I want to talk to her, I need to talk to her in private. I should have went out and said, "Um, Mary, can can I speak with you? And then go talk with her. 
Instead of continuing to let this foolishness and irrational just build inside of her, let it go. Lay it down. That's one thing. Some of us need to, we need to be more like Mary, who when Mary found out that she was offending Martha, guess how she found it out? In public with everyone listening in the house. There she is, kneeled down before Jesus. She finds out she's offending her own sister while her sister complains to Jesus. Like, Daddy, Daddy, you know what, you know what sister's doing? The, like childish kind of stuff. But guess what? The Bible never gives us any indication that Mary holds an offense against her sister. Isn't it interesting that Mary's got her eyes on Jesus, and when the difficult moment comes, it's like water off of her back. Maybe sometimes you need to sit down with the person that's offended you face-to-face and deal with it. I would encourage you to do it sooner than later. Don't let a lot of water pass underneath the bridge. The more water that passes under the bridge, the more time that goes by, the more ammunition that's built up. And ammunition is gathered for one purpose, and that is to have a war. So if you're in a stage right now with your offense that you're gathering ammunition towards the other person, meaning everything they do now ticks you off or offends you or it keeps adding to you know, the list of stuff that you hold against them, you just need to know that's not healthy. You're building ammunition. Soon there's going to be a war, and it's not going to be pretty. Deal with those things quickly. Have a humble heart. Strive after peace. And then lastly, most of the time, most of the time you're never going to be given the opportunity to fix it one-on-one, and you're just going to have to simply come and give it to God. And that's where many of you are at today. If you're dealing with an offense that's forcing you to live as first instead of living surrendered as second, then you need to come to an altar like these, which are altars at New Life, no matter what venue you're in, our altars are, they're for the hungry. People that, they want to know more of God. They want to surrender more of their life to God. I would encourage you today, come to an altar like this. Lay down the offender and let them go. And then start the forgiveness process. It's a, it's a process. You're going to forgive them and you're going to find yourself back at an altar, like down in the venue or in North Platte. You're going to kneel down and you're going to have to forgive multiple times as God starts stirring back up that memory. And he goes, okay, are you going to let it go? Because uh, like an offense is like an onion. It keeps coming off in layers after layer after layer. And then you're going to have to fight. There's going to have to be something inside of you that goes, I'm going to fight to trust people again. I'm going to fight to love people again. I'm going to fight to let people back in my life and give them another chance. That's going to be difficult. But that's something that if you keep your eyes on Jesus, he wants to help you find that freedom. We have a staff member that um, knows this life of Martha, knows this life of doing things to try to find pleasure, doing things to try to find significance and find identity. They know what it's like to have walked through an offense and to, you know, try to deal with it on their own and the destruction that comes from that, and then what it means to truly surrender that offense to Christ and to watch Jesus heal their heart. I want you to hear the personal story of one of our staff members, Kylan Blaze. Broken relationships, abuse, constantly moving from place to place, back and forth from one parent's house to another every other weekend. That was my path from the very beginning. 
I was so confused and so angry. I just didn't understand why no one wanted me, why no one loved me, why it didn't matter, why my life had to be different from everybody else's. I went into middle school, or grade school and middle school, really battling the feelings of inadequacy, trying to fit in all the time. I didn't have a place, and I didn't really understand the meaning of true love. I didn't understand what a healthy relationship looked like. In my path through junior high, I would call it my awkward stage, I grew out of that, and boys started to notice me. And then, on top of that, I really grew into my athletic ability, and I became one of the better athletes in any sport I played. And going into high school, I really threw myself into those things, relationships and sports. That is where I found my fulfillment. Finally, people noticed me, and finally people valued me, they needed me. Win after win, workout after workout, relationship after relationship. I thought I had found fulfillment, but it only left me empty and more broken than before. I was still lonely and confused and hurt and angry. Then my path took a turn for the worst when I got into college and None of those things were fulfilling me anymore, so I turned to drinking alcohol. I thought that drinking alcohol would numb me, yet give me the ability to feel something at the same time. Drink after drink, mistake after mistake because of the drinking. I just felt more shame, guilt, anger, and it became a very heavy burden that I carried for a long time. A burden I couldn't carry anymore. Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody there telling me that the things I was doing was going to lead me a life into a deep, dark pit that I wouldn't know how to get out of. So there I was in my deep, dark pit. And finally, somebody talked to me and invited me here. My boss at the time, Joe Risk, invited me to come help with the Summer Youth Series. It was on a Wednesday night, and he told me it was a game series, so I thought, okay, games with kids. It should be fun. No big deal. It was a big deal, and God rocked my world that night. From the moment I walked into this church, God radically changed my life. I didn't only come on Wednesdays but I started coming on Sunday mornings. And week after week, God just kept speaking more and more truth into me. He revealed himself to me. It was at these altars here in this auditorium that I wept and wept. I was broken, a mess. And I realized I had to lay my whole life down for Jesus. My addictions, my pain, the people I was angry with, people that hurt me, everything had to be laid down so that I could be made new. And literally, at these altars, Jesus wrapped his arms around me and spoke the truth to me that I was. I was brand new. I gave my life to Christ, and he made me literally a new person. 
I don't even recognize that old person anymore. He showed me grace and love when I didn't deserve it. I thought I was too far gone or too dirty, too messed up. And that wasn't the truth at all. God found me in my mess, and he rescued me. I sprinted towards God's arms, and I never looked back. For the first time in my life, I feel loved and valued, beautiful and new. And that doesn't come from anything worldly. No sports, no people. It comes from God himself. My life isn't perfect. My, my new path, it has some bumps in it along the way, some curves and some turns. But the difference is, is that now I have a savior to guide me through it. I have a savior who helps me out of those problems. I have a beautiful family, a wonderful husband. I'm the wife of a pastor. I have this beautiful little boy. I am loved by so many people in this congregation and this community. And I don't deserve any of it. Who I used to be doesn't deserve any of it. That's not how God sees me. I am no longer identified by my past sins, who I used to be. I am identified by the blood of Christ. I am the daughter of a king. And I found my home and I found my fulfillment at the feet of Jesus. And no one can take that from me. My name is Kyle Lynn, and I am second. That testimony is what we're about here at this church. Finding people like Kyle Lynn, letting them walk through the doors of this church, find what it means to have their identity in Christ, all the way to the moment where I'm proud to announce her as one of our staff members. See, that's what I mean when I started the message and I said there's hope. There's hope for transformation. There's hope for change. You don't have to keep going down the same road that you've been on. You can see God work a miracle in your life. But you're going to have to hear the voice of Jesus saying to you that you've got to be more concerned about him than you are anything else. That's what Jesus said in verse 42. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. There's only one thing that you have to concern yourself with today. And that is, is Jesus truly first? Or are you living as first? Are you hanging on to this mentality that there's things that you can do somehow to please God? And if you just do enough of it, then you're going to be good enough and that God's going to welcome you into his kingdom? Or have you come to the place where you realize there's nothing I can do but lay down my life and let Jesus be the king? Are you hanging on to offenses today that need to be brought down to altars like this and just laid down? Are you allowing those things to control you, rule you, transform you into this monster of a person that you never intended to be? Jesus is here in this place today. He's looking for people to respond, 
not like Martha, where they get distracted by all the acts of worship. He's looking for people to respond more like Mary and worship him because he is king. Worship him because he is God. That's what God's looking for today. Who's first in your life? And what are you more concerned with? Let's make that Jesus today. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. So, Father, we take these moments and we want to quiet our heart before you. We want to stop the hecticness of life. We want to lay down our doer mentality because there's nothing that we can really do right now to please you. We can't raise our hands high enough. We can't clap our hands long enough. We can't sing the words of the song perfectly. We can't offer up just the perfect prayer to you. We can't give enough in an offering. There's nothing that we can really do in that manner to, to, to make you go, wow, now that person really loves me. Or what you're asking for us to do is just to simply come, humble ourselves before you, lay our lives down at altars, like the ones in front of our auditoriums. Lay our lives down at the altar of our own seat where we stand right now. And just say, Jesus, I need you more than I need anything else in this world. Help me to overcome my offenses that are ruling me, that are acting like a cancer inside of me, eating away at the righteousness, eating away at the joy in me, piece by piece. Help me to lay those things down, that you would rule and that you would reign. Jesus, we offer up one simple prayer, that you would be first and that we would be second. In Jesus' name.